we are starting in our adult Sunday school here a, another section going through uh, the Westminster Confession of Faith. So we just wrapped up First Timothy. We're going to spend six weeks going through uh, the next set of the confession. Uh, I know we tackled some uh, several months ago, maybe December. So we're picking up where we left off with chapter 14 this morning on uh, saving faith. Let me, uh, let me pray for us, and then I'll get started. All right, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you. We thank you for a beautiful uh, spring morning to gather together and to study your word and worship you. I uh, thank you for the work day yesterday. Thank you for Rick and Kathy and all the work that they do in preparation for it. We thank you for this building that you've given us. We do pray that you'd help us to be good stewards of it. Um, and I thank you also for the time of uh, fellowship that the workday affords. We do pray that you would grow servants' hearts in us and a greater love for the saints. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Faith is something probably uh, we hear all the time, right, in the church. Especially growing up in the church, you hear the word faith. Um, and perhaps we don't always take a ton of time to actually ponder it and consider it, what it actually is, what it entails. So we're going to look at the confession this morning on faith G.I. Williamson, in his uh, study book on the confession, pointed out that saving faith is part of conversion. So conversion is this thing that involves the whole man, and there's multiple aspects of it, including repentance and faith. Where you think of repent and believe, uh, you know, Christ, summary of Christ's teaching there. Uh, so today we're going to focus on saving faith. Uh, next week, Rick, I believe, is going to cover repentance unto life, which is the next chapter in the confession. And those two are tightly coupled. They go together. We're just going to talk about faith this morning, kind of the positive aspect of it, uh, repentance being more of the negative aspect. Um, This morning, there are three chapters in the confession. Um, We're going to read all of them, and then I'm going to jump into what is faith. I think that's most closely tied to paragraph two, so I'm actually going to take these out of order. Uh, If that ends up being a mistake, you can tell me afterwards. But we're going to do paragraph two, and then we'll do paragraph one about how do we get faith and then wrap up with what is the outcome, which we see in paragraph 3. Let's go ahead and read the whole thing. So paragraph 1 of chapter 14. The grace of faith, whereby the elect are enabled to believe to the saving of their souls, is the work of the Spirit of Christ in their hearts, and is ordinarily wrought by the ministry of the Word, by which also, and by the administration of the sacraments and prayer, it is increased and strengthened. Paragraph 2, by this faith, a Christian believeth to be true whatsoever is revealed in the word for the authority of God himself speaking therein, and acteth differently upon that which each particular passage thereof containeth, yielding obedience to the commands, trembling at the threatenings, and embracing the promises of God for this life and that which is to come. But the principal acts of saving faith are accepting, receiving, and resting upon Christ alone for justification, sanctification, and eternal life by virtue of the covenant of grace. And then paragraph three. This faith is different in degrees, weak or strong, may be often and many ways assailed and weakened, but gets the victory, growing up in many to the attainment of a full assurance through Christ, who is both the author and finisher of our faith. So when I was preparing for this, I looked up uh, Louis Burkhoff, he has this uh, great work, Systematic Theology, Reformed Doctrine, um, and he had some helpful points on saving faith. And one of the things that he pointed out at the beginning is that faith is not just a religious term. 
I think I tend to think of it in that uh, way, but that faith is actually used in society, in broader culture, uh, in secular culture, to mean a couple different things. So one kind of definition is that we use this term when we're referring to something that's stronger than an opinion, but kind of less sure than something that we think is real knowledge. So it's kind of like this in-between ground. Or like uh, an intuitive certainty of something. I have faith that something will happen. And then uh, thirdly, that faith is this conviction of something based on the testimony of some individual uh, from whom you heard something. Right? So this aspect of taking it on faith from someone else, or I have it on good authority is maybe an, another way that we kind of imply faith in something. Um, and that third definition is based on the veracity and the trustworthiness of an individual. It's based on the fidelity of the individual from whom you're hearing uh, this information. And so that brings in an element of trust to faith, not just knowledge like the in kind of intuitive certainty uh, definition of faith. Um, and I think we all exhibit faith in everyday situations probably more than we realize. Uh, I was thinking of a couple examples of this. One might be uh, we go to the doctor, right? And let's say you need uh, surgery or something. You're, you're exhibiting faith when you actually go and have that surgery performed, right? You probably don't have personal experience, hopefully not personal experience of having that surgery before, right? So it's probably the first time you're getting operated on by this individual. And so you're putting faith in their ability to operate on you based on their medical credentials, right? You're, you're trusting in their credentials that you're saying this is a trustworthy person based on that. And so I'm going to exercise faith by going and, and having that operation done. Every time we board an airplane, right, we're putting faith in the pilot that he can successfully take off and safely land the plane for us. It's another example of putting trust in someone else. And Burkhoff also pointed out that in the, uh, the, the scriptural terms for faith, in the Old Testament always contains this sense of trust and reliance. And in the New Testament, um, usually contains this sense of confidence or trust in someone and their testimony which is that third definition that Burkhoff mentioned that we've been talking about here. Um, sometimes it can also mean confidence due to personal investigation, but it's usually that former sense of trusting in someone else's witness. So faith in general, if we were to try and put a definition on this, uh, faith in, in general is a persuasion of the truth founded on the testimony of one in whom we have confidence and on whom we rely. So Christian faith, then, in the most comprehensive sense, is a man's persuasion of the truth of Scripture on the basis of the authority of God. And hopefully that sounds very familiar from what we just read. I think Burkhoff was almost quoting the confession here. Uh, paragraph 2, By this faith the Christian believeth to be true whatsoever is revealed in the word for the authority of God himself speaking therein. So that takes us immediately to what are the grounds of faith? What is faith actually based on? And the short answer is that it's based on the veracity, the trustworthiness of God himself. So faith's underpinning rests on the character of God as attested to by Scripture. So we have uh, lots of explanations, uh, depictions of the character of God throughout Scripture, what it is. Exodus 34 6 through 7, this is Moses. He asks to see God's glory, and God puts him in the cleft of the rock, right, and passes by him. And the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God gracious and merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, 
keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. So we have this statement of the character of God that he's abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness um, at the beginning. And this sense of faithfulness and trustworthiness is all throughout Scripture. Uh, We see it all over the Psalms particularly, and the Psalms are very helpful because they oftentimes use um, natural analogies to help us understand the infinite nature of God's trustworthiness and faithfulness. And so we have some comparisons like Psalm 57.10, for your steadfast love is great to the heavens, your faithfulness to the clouds, right? As far up as we can see and imagine, God's faithfulness is like that. It's actually, it actually surpasses that. Uh, Psalm 89.14, righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Steadfast love and faithfulness go before you. Or Psalm 100, verse 5, for the Lord is good, his steadfast love endures forever, and his faithfulness to all generations. Right? It's forever, it's eternal. And so we have these, um, uh, this testimony from Scripture of the character of God, that he is faithful and trustworthy, that it is worthy grounds of our faith to trust in God. But ultimately, the means by which we actually believe that this is true is the work of the Holy Spirit in us. And the confession says that uh, quite well, I think, in chapter 1, when it's just, uh, this chapter on Scripture, describing Scripture, it says in paragraph 5, we may be moved and induced by the testimony of the church to a high and reverent esteem of the Holy Scripture and the heavenliness of the matter, the efficacy of the doctrine, the majesty of the style, the consent of all the parts, the scope of the whole, which is to give all glory to God, and the full discovery it makes of the only way of man's salvation, the many other incomparable excellencies, and the entire perfection thereof are arguments whereby it doth abundantly evidence itself to be the word of God. Yet, notwithstanding, despite all of that, our full persuasion and assurance of the infallible truth and divine authority thereof is from the inward work of the Holy Spirit, bearing witness by and with the word in our hearts. So it's the work of the Holy Spirit that we actually believe that this testimony about God is true. So faith is this uh, trust and a trustworthy uh, testimony. It's grounded on God himself, the character of God. And then continuing with uh, Burkhoff here for another minute, um, he describes the three elements of faith, knowledge, assent, and trust. So knowledge is what he calls the intellectual side of it, that there's this recognition of the truth, um, especially for Christian faith in our own depravity and in God's way of salvation, of redemption. And the reality is that you have to believe certain things to be saved, right? You can't just believe anything but what is revealed in the Word. So there's some measure of knowledge uh, that is necessary that goes along with faith. Then secondly, assent. So there's agreement that the knowledge is actually true, right? So faith has not only heard the truth, but it, it agrees with um, God's revelation of himself and his assessment with us, right? That what we actually, that we read in the Word is actually true, and as opposed to, well, yeah, you can read it and think it's actually false. Uh, James 2.19 points out that uh, even the demons believe God and shudder, right? They do not have saving faith, of course. They shudder because they have this knowledge, some understanding of who God is. Uh, but the, this assent to the truth is not enough, right? Even for us, we can see our sin and not actually repent of it. We could see our sin and acknowledge that it is sin and not repent of it. So at some point, 
there has to be this third element, which is trust, this volitional aspect, that faith is a matter of the will. Trust is, uh, in many ways, the capstone of saving faith. It's what makes faith, faith. It's the act of placing our reliance on this trustworthy testimony that we've been talking about. So if we go back to our uh, doctor analogy, and we kind of break it down with these elements, right? it's one thing to acknowledge that the surgeon has completed medical school, that they're board certified, that they seem eminently capable, right? And it's another thing to then go ahead and schedule the surgery to have them cut you open, right? That, that's, that's where the trust component comes in, where you say, I'm actually placing that reliance on that testimony. Um, I'm exercising faith that the physician really knows what they're doing. So we have this sense of, of certainty, of trust and reliance. Uh, we see that in Hebrews 11.1, 1, uh, this definition of faith. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. We have this aspect of conviction, of believing in an outcome and trusting that something will happen. Uh, we also get this in the Heidelberg Catechism, question uh, 21 on, on faith. It says, what is true faith? True faith is not only a knowledge and conviction that everything God reveals in his word is true, it is also a deep-rooted assurance created in me by the Holy Spirit through the gospel that out of sheer grace earned for us by Christ, not only others, but I too have had my sins forgiven, have been made forever right with God, and have been granted salvation. So we have this confidence, and the Heidelberg uh, highlights this personal trust, that we have this personal trust in that knowledge. We are the ones who are, who are saying, yes, I believe this is true. Burkhoff pointed out that there's uh, some figurative terms used for faith in the New Testament that involve hungering and thirsting. And that's such a, a helpful, tangible uh, analogy, I think, for us. Uh, if I'm hungry, right, I eat food, I go to the fridge with the positive, confident expectation that food will satisfy, that's actually going to deal with my hunger. Right? And so in a spiritually sense, hungering for Christ, looking to Christ, expresses a similar confidence that we trust in Christ to satisfy the spiritual need that we have. So a great example of faith uh, can be found in Luke 7, 1 through 10. This is the centurion whose servant Christ heals, and Christ commends him for his faith. It says, After he finished all his sayings in the hearing of the people, he, Jesus, entered Capernaum. Now a centurion had a servant who was sick and at the point of death, who was highly valued by him. When the centurion heard about Jesus... He sent to him elders of the Jews, asking him to come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly, saying, He is worthy to have you do this for him, for he loves our nation, and he is the one who built us our synagogue. And Jesus went with them. When he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I did not presume to come to you. But say the word, and let my servant be healed. For I, too, am a man set under authority, with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes. And to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him, and turning to the crowd that followed him, said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. And when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant well." So this centurion 
uh, is exercising faith. He understands authority, as he points out, and he believes that Christ has the power and the authority to heal his servant. He was certain of it. Um, and so this is this, this example of faith, the certainty in uh, who Christ is, his ability to heal the servant. So also, we believe the God because uh, we have some trust in the nature and the character of God. All right, so looking at uh, the confession here, it's about time we actually dug into the text of the confession, third of the way through the class. Uh, By this faith, a Christian believeth to be true whatsoever, whatsoever is revealed in the word for the authority of God himself speaking therein. So this is what we've been talking about so far. Uh, saving faith believes the word of God based on the authority of God himself. So since God is holy, he's perfect, he's true, he is, uh, he is trustworthy, his word can be trusted. Uh, we think of Abraham as, like, as this archetype of Old Testament faith. Uh, he's commended throughout scripture for faith. And what does it say about Abraham uh, in Romans uh, 4, 3? Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. We have this trust, this belief in God. I like how the confession here says uh, that a Christian believes to be true whatsoever is revealed in the Word. So it believes all of Scripture. Uh, It's not cherry-picking. It's not picking and choosing what we like out of Scripture, what we want to hear, but recognizing that all Scripture is inspired by God. It's God-breathed. And I think that's very important uh, because we think of passages like 2 Timothy 4, 3-4, "...for the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching." But having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. So this is the opposite of saving faith. Saving faith believes and trusts in God's word rather than our own inclinations or what society says is is true. That's an important distinction there that we're saying God is the one who is trustworthy. God's witness is the one that is reliable Um, not even our own hearts or our own senses. And this is important because uh, the primary aspect of saving faith is to believe the central message of the Bible, which is to trust Christ for salvation, right? Christ's person and the work are the focus of all of Scripture. So saving faith means that um, we trust the Word, and then it means that we actually act accordingly, we act appropriately, and the confession lists different types of Scripture to which we respond. So it says, acteth differently upon that which each particular passage thereof containeth, so yielding obedience to the commands, trembling at the threatenings or the warnings, and embracing the promises of God for this life. So starting with the first one, obeying the commands, uh, James, I think, is helpful on this front when he describes that faith without works, faith without obedience, is dead. So James 2, 14 through 17 What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? In other words, is that actually saving faith? That's what James is asking here. If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. And then James talking about Abraham in verses 8. 18 and then 21 through 24, Uh, but someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, 
And faith was completed by his works, and the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness, and he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. So James is not uh, combating Paul here, right? He's not actually describing justification. He's talking about the proof of, of real faith, of saving faith, the evidence of faith, is shown by works, is shown by obedience, by the actions we take. And so we have this commendation of Abraham. We talked about him believing God and being credited to him as righteousness. And then we see the actions that he took as a result of that belief. And James uh, references them, and we see them in Hebrews as well. Hebrews 11, uh, verses 8 through 10, and then 17 to 19. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out, not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. And so Abraham's faith is shown to be genuine. It's shown to be real and true because he acted accordingly, because he actually obeyed God, picked up, left Ur, and went to Canaan. Right? That's, that's his example of him exhibiting faith because he's acting on the word of God. Um, and similarly with the sacrifice of Isaac here, he's he actually goes out, he's actively carrying out God's command to sacrifice Isaac when God intervenes and provides the ram instead. So good works then are the evidence of the transformative work of the Spirit in our hearts. We're known by our fruit, as it says throughout the Gospels. Uh, this is John the Baptist in Luke 3. Uh, he says uh, in verses 7 through 9, You brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the wrath to come, bear fruits in keeping with repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Uh, We see Christ saying the same thing in Matthew 7, or John 15 is a good example of this. And so striving to obey is evidence of genuine faith. And we see this in all the exhortations in the New Testament towards holiness, to live in a manner worthy of the gospel. Uh, I'm just going to re- read one as an example. Colossians 3, 5 through 10. Uh, Put to death, therefore, whatever is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices. And have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. So Christ is concerned with the holiness of his church. Obedience does matter. All right, so second uh, category here, trembling at the threatenings at the warnings of Scripture. Uh, The fear of the Lord is always held out as a good thing in Scripture. This demonstrates knowledge of who God is. Proverbs 9.10 The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and knowledge of the Holy One is insight. Or Proverbs, or excuse me, Psalm 19, 9. 
The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and altogether and righteous altogether. And then Isaiah 66, 2. All these things my hand has made, and so all these things came to be, declares the Lord. But this is the one to whom I will look, he who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. This idea of trembling at the word of God, that we should take it seriously. We should take the warnings seriously. Uh, The Lord's warnings to shun evil are not idle. Sin has real consequences. And a healthy fear of the Lord is evidence of true faith. Um, Dennis pointed out several weeks ago uh, in one of his sermons on Hebrews that God uses warnings for the good of the elect, for their perseverance, that we might actually stay on the straight and narrow path and not veer off. So obedience, trembling at the warnings, and then embracing the promises of God for this life and that which is to come. Right, so this trust and, and saving faith believes that God will actually fulfill his promises, that he will grant what he has, uh, what he has um, promised us, especially eternal life. Think of Hebrews 11.6, Without faith it is impossible to please him, for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him, right? that he's going to reward that seeking. And uh, seeking him is demonstrated in the principal act of saving faith that the confession describes here, uh, which is receiving, excuse me, accepting, receiving, and resting upon Christ alone. So this is the most fundamental act of faith, is to put your trust in Christ alone for salvation. John six twenty nine, uh, Jesus answered them, this is the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent. Or the work of God is to believe, to trust Christ. That is the will of God for us. Um, y- yielding obedience to the other commands is pointless if you're not trusting in Christ, if you're not resting in him alone. Resting in Christ is the essence of saving faith. And this uh, shows us that Christ is the object of our faith. This is what faith trusts in. It's Christ himself. Uh, faith must be in Christ to be saving faith. And so it's important to note that faith itself doesn't actually save you. Right? The faith by itself uh, has no power. Christ saves you, and faith is the means by which we receive Christ's person and work and are united to him. All of the actual efficacy of salvation is in Christ. Christ saves through faith, uh, but the character of faith is to look away from self and to trust in Christ. And the confession says here, uh, resting on Christ alone, um, and that's such a critical point to emphasize, that it's Christ alone. Um, thinking we need anything in addition to Christ absolutely destroys the gospel, right? Because it, it doesn't believe that Christ is actually enough. It doesn't believe that the cross actually satisfied the wrath of God for our sins. So adding anything to it makes salvation a human work rather than a divine gift, And this is why Paul comes out so strongly against the Judaizers and Galatians um, and false teaching in some of the other epistles as well. is because adding anything to the gospel is really subtracting from it. It it destroys it entirely. So as we think about um, justifications, as resting upon Christ alone for justification, I'm going to read a couple of the larger catechism questions. Question 72 what is justifying faith? Justifying faith is a saving grace. This first part should sound familiar. Wrought in the heart of a sinner by the spirit and word of God, 
whereby he, being convinced of his sin and misery and of the disability in himself and all other creatures to recover him out of his lost condition, not only assenteth to the truth of the promise of the gospel, but receiveth and resteth upon Christ and his righteousness therein held forth for pardon of sin and for the accepting and accounting of his person righteous in the sight of God for salvation. Right, so it's, it's believing that uh, I am a sinner and that God is right to, to um, punish me for those sins, that they deserve eternal damnation, um, and that in Christ we have pardon for those sins, that he bore those sins on the cross, and that we have this imputed righteousness from his uh, perfect life here on earth that is given to us through faith. And then question uh, 73, how does faith justify a sinner in the sight of God? Faith justifies a sinner in the sight of God, not because of those other graces which do always accompany it, or of good works that are the fruit of it, nor as if the grace of faith or any act thereof were imputed to him for justification, but only as an instrument by which he receiveth and applieth Christ and his righteousness. So we think of faith, it's this alone instrument, it's the means by which we receive Christ's person and work. So faith rests in Christ for justification, but it doesn't actually stop there. The confession points out that we continue to rest in Christ for sanctification as well. Uh, Sanctification is this ongoing work where we're progressively transformed more and more into the image and likeness of Christ, uh, where we strive to be holy as he is holy, to obey the law more fully, to please him in gratitude for what he's done for us. But knowing that as Ephesians, or excuse me, Again, all my references wrong here. Philippians 2.13, that it is God who works in you to will and to work according to his good pleasure. So it's God's work. God is the one who ultimately changes the heart. Um, and Philippians 1.6, it's God's work. He has started it, and so he will bring it to completion. I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. And I love how it's put in 1 Thessalonians 5, 23 to 24. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. All right, so we're resting in Christ for justification, for sanctification, and then for eternal life. So this means that we believe since we are justified that God will grant us everlasting life, that he will fulfill that, the promise in his word. We're trusting in God for the inheritance that he has uh, promised. Think of Psalm 23, 6. Surely goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Right? This, this faith in this promise of God to dwell with God forever. Throughout the Old Testament, Uh, There's a consistent theme and promise uh, of God dwelling with his people, right? I shall be their God, they shall be my people. Um, And so we see the consummation of that in Revelation 21, 1 through 4. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, The dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. All right, so this is 
This is this promise, this hope that we're looking forward to. Saving faith rests in this and says, yes, I believe that this will actually happen. Then to wrap up paragraph two, uh, the confession references the covenant of grace. Covenant of grace. We, um, we worked through the confession chapter seven just a few months ago, but let me just highlight a couple things here. Uh, so the idea is God has made a covenant with his uh, people. God is a covenant-keeping God. Um, then covenant of works, this is what he made with Adam. This is the first covenant made with man was a covenant of works, wherein life was promised to Adam and to him and in him to his posterity upon condition of perfect and personal obedience. All right, Adam falls. So then we get uh, paragraph three. Man by his fall, having made himself incapable of life by that covenant, the Lord was pleased to make a second, commonly called the covenant of grace, wherein he freely offereth unto sinners life and salvation by Jesus Christ, requiring of them faith in him that they may be saved, and promising to give unto all those that are ordained unto eternal life his Holy Spirit to make them willing and able to believe. So what the confession is saying here is that we are saved under the covenant of grace, no longer under this condition of uh, personal, perfect, and perpetual obedience, but we're saved through faith, faith in Christ's obedience. And so it's highlighting the fact that salvation is all of grace, that is the, the mercy and kindness of God to us on full display in our salvation. Before we uh, move on to the next paragraph, I just want to point out that um, you probably heard the term blind faith. I feel like it's used fairly often, especially to kind of disparage Christian faith as being irrational or baseless uh, without, any, uh, re- like with any, without any grounds, really. Um, and it's even in the dictionary. If you look in modern dictionaries, like the Merriam-Webster online dictionary, uh, faith is described in religious terms, and, and one of the definitions is a firm belief in something for which there is no proof, right? And, so, and I'm telling you this morning that saving faith is not that, right? That is not the same thing. That's not what we're describing this morning. Uh, true saving faith is not a blind faith. It's not an irrational hope. It has all these elements that we've just discussed, like knowledge, right? There's real, there's knowledge there. Our faith is rooted in facts. It's rooted in history, there's grounds in the nature and the character of God himself. God is faithful, and so faith that is in him will never be put to shame. And then we have this great object of faith, which is Christ himself, uh, the image of the invisible God, the firstborn from the dead, in whom the fullness of deity dwells bodily, as Colossians 1 says. So our, our knowledge of God's character and his works and his ways uh, may seem like flimsy evidence the eye of the believer, right? Or the eye of the unbeliever, excuse me. So that's kind of where this, this idea comes from, this disparagement comes from. But it's ultimately because they don't know God, and the message of the gospel is foolishness to the world. Uh, 1 Corinthians 1, 18, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God. And then two fourteen, The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. Right? So the world does not assent to this truth because the truth is something that's spiritually discerned. All right, let's hop back to paragraph one. The grace of faith whereby the elect are enabled to believe to the saving of their souls is the work of the Spirit of Christ in their hearts. All right, so we talked about what is faith. 
So now if we look at the question, how do we get faith? Um, the the um, authors of the confession are saying that well, this is kind of really what is faith still, that it is a grace. It's a grace of faith whereby the, the elect are enabled to believe. And it's saying that faith itself is the grace of God to you, that it does not come from you. You are enabled to believe, right? This is a passive thing. It's something we receive. Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 says that faith is a gift. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own, not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. So faith is a gift. It's not actually something we conjure up in ourselves. We can't will ourselves to greater faith. It's something that's given rather than being something that's self-generated. Um, and we know that natural man is incapable of any spiritual good. He's described as utterly sinful throughout Scripture. Uh, a couple references, Genesis 6, 5, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And then Romans 3, 9 through 20, what then, are we Jews any better off? No, not at all, for we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, no, none is righteous, no, not one, no one understands, no one seeks for God, all have turned aside, together they have become worthless, no one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. And so this raises the question then, how do we get faith? Right? If it's impossible for us to generate on our own, and the answer is that it is a work of the Spirit of Christ. The Spirit is the one that regenerates our hearts and gives us faith. Uh, some references for this, 1 Corinthians 12, 3. Therefore, I want you to understand that no one is speaking in the Spirit of God. No one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says, Jesus is accursed. And no one can say, Jesus is Lord, except in the Holy Spirit. John 3, 5, talking about regeneration. Uh, Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Uh, Titus 3, 5, He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. And then finally, John six forty four, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. So we, we act according to our nature. So one who is dead in sin cannot exhibit faith until they're regenerated. Faith springs first from the activity of God, um, and then it becomes an activity of man after regeneration. Right? So after regeneration, the heart will demonstrate faith, and faith is ours. It is, it is an act of man, but it has to happen after you've been given that new nature. Um, so we see Christ even commends people for their faith. Uh, which is gracious when you think about the fact that it first comes from God. It has to be given. So then the confession moves to how does the Spirit work faith in us? How does this happen? And it is ordinarily wrought by the ministry of the Word. So the Word is the primary means that the Spirit uses. Uh, we think of, the, of Romans 10 on preaching, how this happens. Romans 10, uh, 14 through 17 How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. 
but they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us. So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. This preaching of the word the Spirit uses uh, to convict our hearts of sin and of the truth of the gospel. Or 1 Corinthians one twenty one. For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. God uses the preaching of the word for the salvation of the souls. It's a means that he uses. Um, and then we get a practical example of that in Acts 16, 14 uh, on Lydia. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of uh, Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. We see this, the Lord doing this work, um, and then she embraces it. All right, so you can't have faith in what you don't know, and you can't know what you're to believe unless you hear the word. And you can't accept the word that you hear unless your heart is opened to the truth by the Spirit. So once that happens, once the Spirit works faith in our hearts, then it's further strengthened all our lives uh, by the word, by the sacraments, and by prayer as the confession says. I liked what uh, G.I. Williamson, again, in his study book on the confession, said that since faith is a grace, it's not just an initial act. It's not a one-time thing, but it's actually a permanent condition of the soul, right? that it, it starts at a point in time, but it's this ongoing activity that never ceases. It's something that we practice and we exhibit all of our lives. So as we think about the word... Uh, as we read and study and hear the word preached over and over again, we believe more and more uh, that it's true. First Peter 2.2, 2, uh, talking about the word, says, Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation. We grow up, we mature through the word. Hebrews 4.12 says that the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. So the word is living and active. The Spirit applies that word to us. Uh, I'm sure many of you have had the same experience that I have had, which is that you can read the same book of Scripture over and over and over again, and each time you can see different things in it or glean new insights. That is the Spirit opening our hearts to aspects of the word that we need to hear at a particular point in time or applying it to certain issues in our hearts. So the word strengthens our faith, um, and then the sacraments strengthen our faith as well. The sacraments are these physical uh, pictures, signs, and seals of, of covenant realities, of spiritual realities that Christ has given us to encourage us, to build us up in the faith. Uh, baptism is something we can see, right? It identifies us with the covenant of grace, the family of God, which is a spiritual reality that's not visible, right? So you can't look at someone and know if they are if they actually possess saving faith or if they're a part of the invisible church. Uh, but baptism is a physical sign that we can see that represents that reality. Uh, similarly with the Lord's Supper, um, you can hold the elements, you can taste them, you can smell them, you can touch them. They're tangible. So just as we hold the bread in our hand, we can know for sure that Christ actually really died for us uh, and he has, has wrought atonement for our sins. These elements are elements of this tangible representation of Christ's sacrificial love for us, even though we didn't actually witness the crucifixion and the resurrection. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty six. 26, think of the words of institution, says, for as often, uh, as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. 
And so it's this, pro- by, uh, it's this proclaiming. We're, we're proclaiming it in this tangible act, and we're proclaiming it to ourselves, among others, right? And that's a helpful thing. We need to hear the truth over and over again. We need to be reminded. And so this pattern, this repetition, is good for us and strengthens our faith. And then finally, prayer. Right? Prayer is an act of faith in and of itself. It is a humble acknowledgement that God is God and we are not. Right? When we praise God, we're affirming that God is worthy of all honor and glory. Uh, we're affirming that the praises we see in Scripture about him are true. Um, we thank God we're acknowledging his goodness to us, and that bolsters our hearts to trust in his future goodness to us. Right? There's this, this practicing aspect of this. Uh, we make requests of God. We are acknowledging that we're powerless, that we're incapable of fulfilling them. And so we're demonstrating trust in God provide for our needs. Right? The act of prayer and the experience of seeing God answer our prayers grow and strengthen our faith. All right. Last paragraph. This faith is different in degrees, weak or strong, maybe often in many ways assailed and weakened, but gets the victory. All right, different in degrees, weak or strong. So what the confession is saying is that faith is not actually equal in all believers. We looked at the example of uh, the centurion in Luke 8 before, who Jesus commends for his faith. He's an example of great faith. Um, Hebrews 11, we talked about that, the example of Abraham. We have these examples all throughout Hebrews 11 of great faith. And then Paul actually says there is such a thing as weak faith, which may be a little surprising to us. Maybe, maybe not. Uh, Romans 14, 1 to 2, As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes that he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. And so we have these teachings in the New Testament on the weaker brother and how we interact with one another in the church because we have these different levels of faith and different understandings uh, of the word um, and maturity. So there's different degrees of faith. So faith can be weak, and moreover, it can be often in many ways assailed and weakened. So what, what assails our faith? First, I would say sin. Sin is something that attacks our faith, that's opposed to our faith. 1 Peter 2.11 says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Right? They are opposed to us. They are opposed to our faith. Um, our own sinfulness can weaken our faith. Uh, if we get stuck in a pattern of sin or even just feeling overly guilty over sin over a long period of time, that can cause us to doubt our salvation even. Um, so we should be convicted of sin. Right? That's an important aspect. Uh, we should repent of it. But then that always should be followed by a renewed confidence in the gospel because we know what Christ has done for us, that he has forgiven it. Uh, but sin can assail our faith. Uh, the cares and pleasures of life can assail our faith. Think of Luke 8, the parable of the sower. And, and listen to this as he's describing the seed that falls among the thorns. As for what fell among the thorns, there are those who hear. But as they go on their way, they're choked by the cares and riches and pleasures of life, and their fruit does not mature. Right now he's describing those who do not actually have saving faith. Um, but the cares and pleasures of life can, uh, can attack our faith. Uh, we I quoted Proverbs 30, 8 through 9 uh, last week at the end of Timothy. I think it actually applies here as well. When he says, Remove far from me falsehood of line. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me. 
lest I be full and deny you and say, who is the Lord? Right? And so he's saying that there's this tendency that we have when, when we're in prosperity to forget our spiritual poverty, to forget our need. Right? That is something that can attack our faith, so to speak. Um, and then cares also can cause us to doubt God's goodness, right? Says, lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God, right? In difficult circumstances, we can wonder, where is God in all of this? Why did God let these things happen to me? So cares and pleasures of life, and then finally, uh, Satan himself, the father of lies. He is opposed to our faith. Listen to this. This is uh, Satan's desire to, uh, to defeat Peter's faith. In Luke 22, 31 to 32, Christ says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Right, so we have all these adversaries to our faith. But there's a great confidence. Uh, confession says it gets the victory. Right? We know the outcome. The outcome is not in doubt because it's through Christ who is both the author and finisher of our faith, right? Our faith is not what saves us, as we said before. We're saved by Christ. We're saved by the object of our faith. And so the victory does not come through the strength of our faith. It doesn't come through our own holding on, right, to the ends of our lives, but because Christ is faithful. He is the author and finisher of our faith, which is uh, Hebrews 12, 2. Um, Jude 24 now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Right? He is able to keep you from stumbling, to present you blameless in his presence. Right? So our faith is not something that we're responsible for maintaining in order to inherit eternal life. Uh, Christ grants us the faith that comes from God, and he is the one who sustains it. Uh, he will not let it fail. He has promised not to lose any of those whom the Father has given him. We look at John 10, 27 through 28. So encouraging. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. And so this is why we have assurance of salvation. It's a whole other chapter. But it's referenced here in the confession, this assurance. It grows up in many to the attainment of a full assurance. Right? We can know whether we are right with God or not. We can be confident of salvation um, and eternal life in his presence because saving faith is a gift. It comes from God. It's his work. It's not something that we gin up in ourselves. And so it cannot be lost because God is faithful and he does not change. All right, let me pray for us and we'll close. Heavenly Father, we come before you. Uh, we thank you that you are the author and finisher of our faith. We thank you that you grant it. Uh, we thank you that you have begun a good work in us, and you will bring it to completion. We pray that you would do so. Uh, I do pray, Lord, for any who are in this room who do not have saving faith, that you would grant it, that they might rest in Christ alone for salvation and experience everlasting life in your presence for all eternity. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.